we're in week two of a series, and it's called You in Five Years. What will you be? Who will you be in five years? And last week I told you this. This is the whole like series arc in one sentence. The ways you let in become the ways you are set in. And it's real easy to think that what I'm doing right now doesn't matter, but it does. Those ways, whatever you're doing now, those become the ways we're set in. And I can look at what you're doing and say, if something doesn't change, I can tell you what you're going to be in five years, and you may not like it. Last week, we said, but it is never too late. It's never too late to start making the right decisions, to begin doing the right things. You remember last week, ongoing consistency is much more important than short-term intensity. We make the decision and we just keep doing the right things. It's really easy to fizzle and we don't want to see that happening. So where are you going to be in 2024? For, For those of us who are, I don't want to say old, but older... When I say 2024, it's like, is that even possible? That's five years from now. Who will you be? If you're not going the right direction, here's my advice. Now is the time to get off the bus, okay? If you're not going the right direction, you don't get off when you're even further from where you want to be. Um, Because we're not talking about, we don't want to just be a little bit better next week. You know, a little bit better next month, a little bit better next week. That's good. But we're going big. We want to say, who will you be in 60 months? Because a huge part of that, you're deciding right now. Now, we know that one of the times people make changes is when they come to some sort of crossroads or catastrophe or calamity in their life. That's when we make changes. Dr. Henry Cloud and John Townsend, I've heard these guys speak. They're phenomenal Um, in in this area, but um, I love this quote from them. We change our behavior when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. Consequences give us the pain that motivates us to change. See, none of us want to change. Change hurts. There's pain involved. But sometimes we get to the point where the pain of, of, of changing is, is, is irrelevant compared to the, the pain of staying the same. And so we have to change. So maybe you're going through some kind of painful situation. Maybe it's a situation that's going to drive you to take some action and make some changes in your life. And maybe in five years, you're going to be so much better off because you did it. That's some of you here today. But maybe you're, I don't know, maybe you're coasting a little bit. Maybe things are not, at the moment, in the catastrophic mode for you, and you don't feel like you have to change. See, both of those situations are going to be covered today, when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of changing, as well as when we might be thinking more about change like this. Do I have to? I don't want to. Do I have to? You know, I'm feeling like maybe there's a few changes, but I'm feeling no pressure, you know? I hate it when people say that to you. You have to have this done, but no pressure. You know what that means. Pressure, but maybe you're not feeling it. And maybe you need to make a change, but it's harder to get motivated to make a change when there's no pressure. So what we're going to do today is we're going to learn from two great people. We've looked at a little past. Um, one of them is Elijah. 
Elijah has been called the greatest miracle-working prophet in history. Just an amazing story about the things that he did um, serving God. And then we're going to look at his apprentice, Elisha. So I don't know about you, but I always kind of thought, it's like if I would have been the one writing the Bible, I would have had Elisha's name be a little different because Elisha and Elijah are like almost the same. It could have been, you know, why couldn't it have been like, you know, Bob or Tim or Fred or George or something? And, and I always mix those up. I always thought it was a little weird that they're so close. So today, throughout this message, I'm going to screw it up. It's just going to happen. I'll do it on purpose, really. But no, no. Uh, but names were very close. Elijah, he is this great prophet of old that did amazing miracles. He had so many amazing adventures. And God told him the person that was supposed to follow him, the person he was supposed to train to be his replacement when the time came. That's where we pick up the story. Elijah is actually just coming out of a pretty bad funk at this point. Um, and that will often happen to him and to us after great events. There's kind of a, a, a crash a little bit. And God is in the process of encouraging him and um, telling him, you're going to go find this one that's going to be your apprentice and replacement someday. So that's where we pick up the story. In First Kings 19, starting in verse 19, it says this. So Elijah went from there, this place where he was staying, where God was picking him up, and found Elisha, see, there, it sounds the same, um, son of Shaphat, And he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Now, this is very important. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. This really hit me this time as I was reading this. Um, This guy, Elisha, he was wealthy. He was very wealthy. See, most people of that day, most people couldn't afford an ox, to help them with the the chores around the family farm. It would be like having a really nice tractor. And most people couldn't afford that. It's not cheap. This guy's family had 12 pair of oxen. That's like a fleet of tractors or combines. So this is like a huge operation, you know, Shafat Industries. Is that what his name was? Shafat It's like this huge farm, and they're doing all this stuff, and Elisha is on the 12th pair. They're not just plowing with one. They got him yoked together. He's plowing with both of these, and that's that's the picture we have here. We forget that this is an amazing life he has. Here's what happens next. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. And some of you are wondering why I'm wearing a coat today. It's like you're sweating, Tim. Why are you wearing a coat? Well, I'm wearing partly because this is Harley and I'm dreaming today. I felt like singing a song. I like dreaming. Um, I, I have ordered from Dennis Kirk a pair of knobby tires and floats for my motorcycle so that I can get down my street. But I, I, I wore this, and, and you, everybody raise your right hand. Say, I will not. Okay, good. You are sworn to secrecy. This is not my jacket. It's my oldest son's. And he comes to second service. I haven't asked permission yet. But it was in my closet. It's like, you put it in my closet, I'm going to wear it. <laughs> so here's what happened. Elijah comes up, and here's Elisha out here in the field with 12 yoke of oxen. And Elijah comes walking up, and he takes off his jacket. He takes off his mantle, his cloak, whatever you want to call it. I want to throw it on something, but not the guitar. And he throws it over the back of Elisha. And we look at that, and it's like, why did he do that? 
It's not like Elisha is cold. You know, he's working hard. It was symbolic. Elijah is throwing his coat, his cloak, around Elisha to symbolize the passing of power and the authority of that office to him. Now, it doesn't happen right that moment. We understand that he, he knows what that's about. But at some point, very soon, Elijah takes his coat. Oh, that hurt. Rotator cuff things. I'll tell you about that later. Um, <laughs> we know Elisha understands what Elijah's doing. He does that. We know that because he accepts the call, and here's how he responds. Verse 20, Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come to you. So Elijah must have thrown a coat over him um, and turned and started leaving, and Elisha runs back, and I'm thinking that's probably where he gets his coat back. But Elisha chases him down to say, let me just do this first. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll come follow you. Now, in the New Testament, this is actually used, some people use this as an excuse to not follow Jesus. They didn't want to give everything up. They really wanted to go back and do something else. And this is not an excuse. Um, We know this partly because of what he did in a moment, but we know it also just because the word kiss, it's a verb, the verb tense of this is not just, I'm going to go and kiss my mother and father goodbye. It's, there has been this ongoing relationship that's really good. And now, for the final time, I'm going to kiss him goodbye. And he's saying, I'm not leaving because I have to. There's a lot of kids who are working on a farm that are saying, any excuse to leave? Yeah, I'm out of here. That's not where Elisha was at. He had a good relationship at home, and he says, I just need to go back and kiss my mother and father goodbye. And so here's what Elijah says. Go back. What have I done to you? Now, he didn't say it that way. We hear it that way because that's what we would say. Go ahead, go back. What have I done to you? That's not what it is at all. It's kind of unusual reply to us. What have I done to you? It's actually an old Hebrew idiom. And it means, you know, go ahead, do as you please. I'm not stopping you. And the implication is, I want you, go ahead and do that. But I want you to think about what I've done to you. I want you to understand what's really happening here. Go ahead and do that. But I want you during that to take the time to think about what's just happened here. So it tells us in verse 21, So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen. This is very important. He didn't take all 12 yoke of oxen. He only took his, the one that he used. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat. And he gave it to the people, the other workers around there, the other people from the farm, and they all ate. And when that was finished, it says, then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. So Elisha accepts this call. It's kind of like, you know, come with me to Dagobah and train to be a Jedi, and you have to leave everything in order to do that. And he becomes Elijah's apprentice. Eighteen years pass. Eighteen years. It's a long time. That's long enough to be born and graduate from high school. Long time. Do you know what we know of Elisha during that 18 years? One thing. We have one detail about Elisha in 18 years. That's it. Here's what it is. We've got to skip ahead to 2 Kings 3 to find out. 
So the, Elijah's gone at this point. They're looking for a new prophet. And it says, Jehoshaphat, the, the, the guy in charge, asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may, inqu- we, we may inquire of the Lord? And then an officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. Here's what it says about him. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. That's it. That's all we know of Elisha. For 18 years, he poured water on Elijah's hands. He washed his hands. I have this picture of Elisha following Elijah. And Elijah does an amazing miracle. Elisha opens the fanny pack, takes out the hand sanitizer, (laughs) wipes his hands, puts the hand sanitizer back in the fanny pack, and continues to follow him for 18 years. That's all we know. Pouring water on Elijah's hands is really a reference to um, Elisha being Elijah's servant for 18 years. That's the second movement to our story here. Now, as we near the end of Elijah's ministry, here's what happens. We go back to 2 Kings 2, verse 7 says this. 50 men, 50 men from the company of the prophets. So this is, I don't know if it's like a biker gang, you know, the company of the prophets. <laughs> These are guys who, who, they are prophets kind of in their own right, but they're not like the prophet. But there's 50 of them. And it says, they went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. So they're, they're watching these two guys. They're following. It's like, this is, if you're in the company of the prophets, Elijah is like the man, you know, and has been for many years. So they're kind of following him, and Elijah and Elisha are walking together, and they come to the Jordan River and stop. Now, I think Elisha has learned the things um, that when you're with Elijah... Things are never as they seem. It's just always something weird going on. And he probably learned the hard way, don't make suggestions. Elijah knows what he's doing. He probably had come up with enough suggestions, and it was like, yeah, that's not what we're doing here. Well, maybe we can find something and float across, or we can see a tree and we can climb over. And he learned he's not going to do that. So it's like he's just going to go with it. So you picture Elijah and Elisha standing on the banks of the Jordan River. And here's what verse 8 says. Elijah took his cloak. See, he has it back. I told you he had it back. He took his cloak and he rose it up. Now remember, Elisha's standing right there and he goes like this. Boom! Don't tell Dan I did that. (laughs) He hits the edge of the water and the water parts. And it says... He rolled it up, struck the water with it, and the water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. It wasn't even muddy. If that wasn't Dan's jacket, I would try it on my road. (laughs) But I can't do that. They walked over on dry ground. All Elijah's, Elisha, you know, Elijah does that and then starts walking over. It's like, yeah. And Elisha, he's seen a lot of miracles, and it still impresses him. And I'm wondering what those other 50 people are thinking as they're off in the distance, they're watching it as well. And it said, when they had crossed, and I know he picked it up again. You'll find out that, how I know that in just a minute. He picked it up and put his cloak on again so that everybody could see it. And it says, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? So you see this. He said, you've been my apprentice. You've been my Padawan for 18 years. 
you know, the whole hand sanitizer thing. And 18 years, and I'm going to be going. What can I do for you before I'm gone? That's what he's asking him. I absolutely love Elisha's answer. It could have been a thousand different things, but here's what Elisha says. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. That's what Elisha asked for. What he wanted was not so that he would look good. He wanted to be able to serve God like Elijah had. He wanted to have that power like Elijah had, not for himself. He wanted God's spirit. But he wasn't content with, let me just do what you do. It's like, I want a double portion of it. I like that boldness that he asked that. That says so much about Elisha's character. I truly hope that that's what's in your heart as well. That you're not satisfied with just a little. You're not satisfied with, I'll be a little better next week or next month. That you're going to go for it. Because God wants to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. That's what he wants to do for you. You see, too many people, too many people pray small prayers. The problem with small prayers is that you just might get what you ask for instead of what God wanted you to have all along. Because he has amazing things for you. And so Elisha says, I'm going for it. What can I ask for? Here's what I ask for. I I don't just want what you have. I want a double portion of it. It's like, go big or go home. I love that. So here's what Elijah said. You have asked a difficult thing. Yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. Is anything ever easy with this guy? It's like, yes or no? Come on. He says, nope, if you see me when I'm taking from you. I think he's messing with Elisha a little bit. And I'll explain why in just a moment. But here's what I see in in my divine sparked imagination. I see Elisha now. I don't know if this was like two minutes later or two hours later. I have no idea. But here's here's how I picture Elisha. I'm not blinking. I'm not turning away because if I turn away and you disappear, I don't get it. I'm not going to miss this. And I see him doing that. I don't want to miss this. And here's what happens next in verse 11. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire. So you get the picture. A chariot that's on fire but not burning up. And horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, came between Elisha and Elijah. And here's where some people get this mixed up. Those people, there are many people who are like church people, and you say, what happened to Elijah? Oh, he was taken up in a chariot of fire. No, he wasn't. That's not what it says. It says there was a chariot of fire and horses of fire that came between them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a what? A whirlwind. It's like, and and the the whirlwind, this word is lightning and wind and thunder and craziness. And we see this horse and chariot of fire separate them. And here goes Elijah up in this whirlwind with the lightning flashing and everything's crazy. That's how I know that Elijah was messing a little bit with Elisha. If you see me when I'm taken up, it'll be yours. How could you miss that? (laughs) Well, that happens every day. 
So Elisha sees this, obviously, and cried out, my father, my father. It's a, it's a term of endearment. He's followed this guy for 18 years. The chariots and horsemen of Israel. This is not the first time they've appeared. Not the first time Elijah has seen them. Not the first time Elisha. Elisha is actually going to have another incident later on that I think is just really cool and it will probably really spark his memory where their army is standing there and he has his guy with him, his apprentice with him, and this guy is scared and Elisha said, because the army that they're facing is 10 times their size. Elisha says, I don't worry. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And the guy's like, ah, you can't count, Elisha. And Elisha prays to have that servant's eyes open, and he sees that the hills are surrounded with chariots and horses of fire. These are, these are heaven's armies. And it says, Elisha then saw him no more. These are the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And he sees Elijah go away, and Elisha doesn't see him anymore. Elijah didn't die. Went to heaven. It says... Then he took hold of his garment. Elisha takes the coat he's wearing and tears it in two because it wasn't his son's, it was his. <laughs> and he could tear it in two. He tore his garment in two. One of the reasons is to show I am done with my stuff for good. I am done with my old life for good. And here's what I picture. I picture Elijah's coat. He's taken up in this whirlwind and the horses and the chariot of fire going. And you see this falling down it kind of says that as he's swept away to heaven and Elisha's watching he's disappeared the horses and the chariots of fire gone and the coat comes floating down it says Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him in verse 13 and went back and stood on the Jordan so this is all he's got left of Elijah he's gone He's gone up into heaven and he walks back to where they started and he's standing on the banks of the Jordan. And what he has now is his coat's gone and he's permanently taking the cloak, the mantle that was placed on him temporarily 18 years ago to symbolize one day you'll be the guy. He picks this up and it says in verse 14, he took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and he had just seen this happen a few minutes ago. And he struck the water with it. He says, where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? I don't think he was asking that question because he didn't know the answer. He was asking that question because other people were watching. There was 50 other people watching. And Elisha wanted them to know that same God that Elijah served is still here and he's still powerful. And it says, when he struck the water... It divided. I don't know how much faith he had. It sounds like he had a lot. I know there would have been this thing in the back of my mind like, oh, if this doesn't go, what am I going to do? But he sees it. He crosses over then. This story, Elisha then literally picks up the mantle and becomes the guy and does some amazing things. But this story of Elijah and transitioning to Elisha, there's, there's three movements in this story that are very important for us to understand. As I said at the beginning, when you're at some kind of crossroads or catastrophe or calamity in your life, you prove you can change. Because you have to. 
You prove you can do hard things. We read about this all the time. People doing amazing things that they could not do any other way because they're at this, this, this horrible thing is happening, this catastrophe, this crisis is happening. We read about mothers lifting up cars so their kids can get out. We hear about all kinds of things that you can do if, if it's necessary. So my question is, what could you do if you had to? You could do a lot. But what do you do when there's not as much pressing? We still want to do great things. You still want to be what God wants you to be in five years. Here's the three movements, and I believe they are for us today. They apply to us today. Here's the first one. If you're taking notes, it's down at the bottom. There's actually two things. You'll get the the second thing next to it in just a moment. But here's the first thing. First movement of the story, drastic action. Drastic action. It's not enough to just coast. Elisha is in a good situation. There is no pressure for him to leave. But in order for there to be change, there has to be drastic action. When there's a crisis, when there's a catastrophe there, we prove that we can do that. But sometimes it's not there. But there still needs to be change. And in order to do that, there has to be drastic action. He burned and ate the oxen. There is no... He burned the wood and ate the oxen. If I was doing the barbecuing, it would be burning the oxen. See, it's not because I'm no good at barbecuing. It's because that's how I like mine. So consequently, I'm not allowed to barbecue. That's okay. My son, whose coat that is, is the grill master. <laughs> so here's what he's saying when he does that. There's no retreat. There is no going back. There is no quitting. Why is this necessary? Why is drastic action necessary for you to be who you need to be in five years? Remember last week? If you missed last week, go listen to it online. You won't get to see this cool thing, but it's on YouTube. You can find it. We looked at dominoes, and, and we saw how a domino can knock down the domino next to it if it's, if it's um, one and a half times its size or less. And we saw 13 dominoes, the first one starting at five millimeters, end up knocking one down that was three feet tall and weighed 100 pounds. In just 13 dominoes, that's how it happened. See, even though the first domino was small, it had to start somewhere. There had to be drastic action. Even though it might be little action, it had to be drastic action because when you want to see something amazing happen, something's got to light the fuse. Something has to make you make that change, make that choice, take that action. Here's how Isaac Newton said it. I love Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton. He said, we have to overcome inertia. He came up with, the, among many, many other things, the laws of motion. And they apply directly to this, and they apply to your life. And the first law of motion is, it's kind of two-pronged. An object at rest tends to stay at rest unless it's acted upon by an outside force. An object in motion will tend to stay in motion unless it's acted upon by an outside force. And I think it's fascinating that the word inertia... Um, one of the words that comes from the word inertia is the word lazy. So when there is more you know, mass, more inertia required, when there is more mass, that requires more force to change. When something is, the bigger something gets, the more force it requires to get it going and to get it moving. What that means for us is the longer you've been lazy, the harder it is to move. 
the harder it is to change. I winced a few minutes ago when I put that coat on. I had this rotator cuff thing going on, and um, we're blessed to have some brilliant people in our, in our church, and one of them has given me a thing that are some stretching exercises and things that I need to do in order to make that good. And I got to say, don't like it at all. And it's very easy for me to say, oh, I don't have time to do that today. It takes a long time. But here's what happens. If I decide if I don't do that, it's not going to end well, so I have to do it. So I, I, I kind of get down and I do the first, the first one. If I can do the first thing, then I can do the next thing. And then I can do the next thing, and pretty soon I'm done. That's that way with exercise for, for anybody, you know? It's not like you have to go out and run 10 miles. Sometimes you just have to get off the couch, but we have to do something to overcome that initial inertia. And the longer we've been lazy, the harder it is to change. The most energy needed for change gets spent overcoming inertia. We're thinking all these things down the road, how bad is it's going to be. And really, the hardest part is just right at the beginning, both mental and physical. Just get, getting the things going. How many of you have pushed a car? If you know my cars, you know we push cars a lot at my house. <laughs> if you push a car, you don't just walk up and, you know, push the car. I mean, it's a Suburban, first of all. It's heavy. And so what happens is you grunt and you push a little bit, and pretty soon it gets moving. And once it gets moving, you can get it going. I do this once a week or more at my house, not push a car. Um, I, I, I have this example in my life when I mow my lawn. And the grass is turning green. Someday I'm going to actually be able to mow my lawn again. I'm actually excited about that. I have a couple trailers, old trailers in my yard. One of them is a big old gravity box, and they're heavy. And it sits in the yard, and I don't want all the grass growing up under it. So every time I mow, I have to move the gravity box. Now, I could unhook things and hook up to it and pull it out of the way and do all that, but that takes more time than I have. So what I do is I stop the mower, I put the brakes on, I get out, I take the blocks away from the wheel on a gravity box. I learn the hard way that in a very bad storm, the wind can blow it and tip it over, and it doesn't end well. So I have blocks under it so it doesn't, and, and it kind of settles in in that week. And you get out there, and it's like, nothing's happening. So you push it a little bit, and it goes a little bit this way, and then it comes a little bit this way. And, and you're, what I'm doing is I'm overcoming inertia. I'm getting it out of its rut, and I'm pulling this, I don't know what it weighs, 1,700 pounds or something. I'm pulling this thing, and once I get it out of its rut and get it moving, I can move it 30 feet out of the way and then hurry up and grab the blocks and put them under the wheel again so it doesn't roll down the hill. Because once I get it moving, it moves. But it's that initial getting it going. See, this is one of the reasons. This drastic action is necessary because we have to overcome inertia. Drastic action is one of the reasons why, uh, just one of the reasons why when you get baptized, for instance, you get all wet. Because it's a drastic action. We're saying, I'm going all in for Jesus. He died, was buried, and rose for me, and I am going to go all in for him. And I come out excited, and we've seen that over and over as we've baptized over 300 people at Journey North Church. Very exciting. Maybe that's your step. Maybe you need to turn from something. You need to quit something. Maybe you need to throw something out. Maybe there's something that's messing with your life and you know if it keeps going in five years, it's probably not going to end well. 
and you've rationalized it and justified it and you need to throw it out. Maybe you need to, you have something going on in here and you, you need to share this hurt, the hurt habit or hang up. You need to share it with someone, someone in a small group, some accountability partner, you know, some, some person from CR because we know the revealing of feeling is the beginning of healing and we know that the initial thing is the hardest part of it. Maybe, maybe you need to break up with someone. If you're married, I am not talking to you. <laughs> Just saying. If you're dating someone, maybe you need to break up with them. Maybe you need to delete some contact information from your phone. Maybe you know that it's taking you the wrong direction. I had to get to that point in my life those many years ago that I had to stand before God alone and say, I am tired of being a phony. And what I had to do took drastic action. I was, I was metaphorically burning the yoke and cooking the oxen. And it was done. There was no going back. There was no turning back because change in our life requires drastic action. The second movement of our story is steady progression. Just steady progression. Slow and steady. 18 years of pouring water. See, drastic action is what tips over our first domino. And then comes steady progression, consistency, not giving up. He didn't give up for 18 years. He might not have, he thought he was, I'm going to follow the prophet Elijah. I'm going to do all these amazing things. And for 18 years, he puts water on his hands. But he's learning during that time. See, we have to remember that we sow and we reap in different seasons. It's not like you plant it and then it grows. Different seasons. It's day in, day out. We keep sowing, we keep watering, we keep dreaming. That's why we say, Jesus, coffee, repeat. Jesus, coffee, repeat. We do the right things. And when you do the right things over time, that's how you get where you want to be. And sometimes it feels like all I've been doing is, you know, putting sanitizer on this guy's hands and it's too easy to quit here's what John Maxwell said improvement doesn't happen in a day but it must happen daily we can never give up it's drastic action but it's followed by steady progression and then the third movement here is enjoy momentum we enjoy the momentum that it's created because all of this momentum, all of this what we're doing, the, the drastic action and the steady progression leads to this momentum because inertia, we, we talked about inertia, it's a double-edged sword. You know, an object at rest tends to stay at rest unless acted upon by an outside force. But an object in motion tends to stay in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. It's way easier to steer a car that's moving than standing still. I mean, you like bowling. like to bowl? Did you ever kick a bowling ball? <laughs> I haven't. I have watched, I won't say who, kids, little kids do that once. <laughs> Very seldom do they do it twice. You could kick a tennis ball, but you ain't going to kick a bowling ball more than once because not much is going to happen. There's mass there. There's inertia there. But it's magic when, when you correctly get it going. It takes a little drastic action. 
It takes this, this ongoing progression, this steady progression. But when that gets moving, good things can happen. That's how you knock the pins down, not by kicking the bowling ball. But this momentum we get to enjoy. Um, space shuttle. It's kind of going to become a thing of the past, but um, I have a spot in my heart for that. I was actually in Florida for one of the launches my, with my, my parents down there, and I was a ways away from it, and you could feel the ground shaking and the roar in your chest. I don't know if you know this, but it takes more fuel to take off than the whole rest of the mission put together. It has to break free. You have to break free. Whatever, whatever is going on, maybe there's some, some catastrophic crisis happening in your life and it's going to cause you to prove that, yep, I can change. But maybe it's not. And you realize, but I, I don't want to be where I am right now, five years from now. That's not who I want to be. And it will take drastic action for you to break free. There's another part on your outline there next to where you wrote those three things. Drastic action is always unbearable. I don't, this isn't up on the screen, don't worry. It's unbearable. We don't want to make those changes. But in order for something better to happen, we have to take drastic action. That's unbearable. The steady progression that is over time that is going to be not just days and weeks, but months and years, that's uncomfortable. It's not always exactly what we want, and it's easy to quit. You realize what happens when you quit. You have to start over. You have to overcome the inertia all over again. So it may be uncomfortable, but don't quit. When you enjoy momentum because you followed through with that, that's when it will become unstoppable. Unstoppable in Jesus' name. I think about that. I was going to say every day, but it doesn't happen every day. My watch in the morning dings. It sends me a message, and I look at it, and it says, here's what you did yesterday. Like, for instance, I closed all three of my rings for exercise stuff yesterday, and it said, great job closing all three rings, Tim. You're unstoppable. Do it again today. It's kind of depressing when it says, great job. You closed three rings on Wednesday, and it's Saturday. <laughs> That's when it's not quite. I want to hear that I'm unstoppable. And you know what? It's not because of me. It's not because of you. We can be unstoppable because of Jesus. Elisha went through 18 years of stuff that everybody else would look at and say, that ain't much. But he did it. And because he did it, he got to enjoy that momentum and had an amazing ministry. Who are you going to be five years from now? Because it starts today. Yeah, it starts with some drastic action. But it will be worth it. I'd like, to, like you to close your eyes, bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray. We know, Father, that change is never easy. It's always painful. And often we won't change until we absolutely have to. And my prayer, Father is that even if we're not in a position right now where we're going through something that is making us have to change, I pray that we would know that who we are right now is not who you want us to be five years from now. That your plans are more than we could ever think or ask or imagine. And because of your power that works in us, 
we can see that come to fruition. I pray that we would hear from you and whatever that drastic action is you're going to ask us to take, that with your strength and your power and your courage, we would be able to do that. And Father, for anybody listening to this who's never taken that first step, that first drastic step, that first drastic action of saying, I'm tired of either being a phony or I'm tired of trying to do this by myself, knowing that it doesn't work, I need Jesus. I need that relationship with God that only comes through Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Father, I pray right now for anybody listening to this who's never taken that first step, that they would have the courage to say in their heart to you, today is the day. I'm turning everything over to you. I'm I'm burning the plows. I'm not going back. I'm going to follow you. And I know that it, it's, it's not going to be an easy road, but I know that I won't ever have to do it alone, that you'll be there with me. That in simple faith, they would say, Jesus, I don't understand it all, but I come to you today. I believe that my sin has separated me from God, and I believe that what you did on the cross for me paid for that. I, I claim that today. I claim you today. I receive you as my Savior. So, Father, I thank you for the the many different decisions that are being made today, and I pray that we would be able to overcome that inertia by your power and stick with it by your power so that we could enjoy that momentum and be who you created us to be. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please stand for the closing song. One of the things we like to say here is, at Journey North Church, we're all screwed up but we're getting better. The only way to get better is to take those steps. See, what we just sang was what God is doing. He is relentlessly pursuing you because whatever rut you're in, whatever thing that's holding you down, that's not where he wants you five years from now. He wants to be moving, and you might be thinking, well, things are going pretty good for me. You probably need change more than the rest of us then. Because he has more than you could ever ask or dream or imagine in store. Let him do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for that amazing, relentless, reckless love of God. That you pursued me. That you pursue us. Even when we are against you, you are pursuing us. That we can come to you and you will be there with open arms and never leave us or forsake us. Father, thank you. We love you. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.